Okay, welcome to Rooster Radio, episode number four, where we talk about business, leadership, sport, marketing, and how it all comes together. Um, so as I said, we've done three episodes. Uh, I'm Andrew Montessi. I'm here with my co-host, Mr. James Begley. James, what sort of feedback have we got so far, mate? Well, it depends. The, the wider audience has been really positive. Um, I have to say my wife, Sarah, has been exceptionally positive, which um, I'm not sure how uh, your home front has received it, but uh, very supportive. I'm actually surprised considering she bagged me for about a week leading up to our first episode. Yeah, support isn't a word that I'd sort of use to describe my wife's feedback. Um, she pretty much said that she hears enough of me talking shit and there's no way that she would sit down and listen to a podcast of me talking shit. Um, so she hasn't even listened to one episode yet and um, will not even give it five minutes. So um, perhaps when she hears about our next guest, that might actually lure her into actually listening for the first time. Well, maybe I think our next guest brings actually some credibility to <laughs> what we're doing. And, um, and I think besides you and I listening to ourselves uh, the night that we record it and thinking that we're actually outstanding at what we do, um, yeah, we're keen, to, we're keen to push this and see how many more listeners we can get. So uh, just, just some, did receive some great feedback from my accountant, uh, Tony Vrulis from Vrulis Wallace Bond. In fact, it's actually Wallace Vrulis Bond, but I like to put Tony first. So all the guys up there in, on Glen Osmond Road, um, I'll uh, expect some uh, sponsorship dollars in the mail pretty soon. Right, perhaps let's get to our first guest, who is Ben Fitzsimmons. Um, I've known Ben for quite a few years from my sport reporting days. So Ben is a property developer, uh, basketball mad, former CEO of the Sixers, uh, into classic cars as well. I actually did a bit of Googling on you because you know, um, there's a bit of stuff that I didn't know about you and saw that you won a couple of classic Adelaide rallies, is that right? Yeah, yeah, we had um, some success here in Adelaide, uh, classic Adelaide, uh, down in Tassie with uh, Rally Tasmania, um, so yeah, you know, sprayed some champagne, got on the podium, um, had some fun. Ben, I always equate motorsport to um, rich kids who don't need to work anymore and they just want to crash their really expensive toys. So um, I am going to pick your brains about the motorsport stuff because I know you've got some great stories. Um, in terms of, I guess, your career path, though, and, and how you've evolved through all these different worlds, we'd love to just, for you to just paint a bit of a picture about you know, your, your journey and your evolution to this point. Yeah, I, thank you. Um, I guess uh, the, the, there's two lives, I guess you could call it. There's one that I worked out by myself, um, one that I was having an education where I didn't ha know that I was having an education, and, and um, that sort of revolves back to my dad getting divorced from my mum back in the day when I was young, and he moved to Queensland and, and um, ended up being a project manager on a, in the Sundays on Hamilton Island. So every school holidays, four times a year, I'd fly up to Hamilton Island. Sounds terrible. Uh, well, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, it's, it's a little bit different to when I first went up there. Um, so what year are we talking? Oh, that would be like 81, 82, 83, around that era, uh, early 80s. Um, and so I got to see the madman that was Keith Williams um, and his vision come to life um, 
through that experience. So, you know, instead of being the kid colouring in in the corner, I'd go to work with Dad and sit in on meetings with lawyers and architects and engineers and all that sort of stuff and, and um, didn't really understand what I was a part of until the light went on probably, you know, early 20s to say, well, I know how, actually how to do all this. I've seen it done. I've been part of it. I know how it works and sort of set off and try to do it myself. Just take us back. What, what was on Hamilton Island at that point at, through to then by the time sort of everything had got going? Like, just explain the difference, the transition. Yeah. So Keith bought the island in the late 70s, I think it is, with a, a gentleman by the name of Brian Burt. Brian Burt is a famous Queenslander who's probably more known for giving Dick Johnson his first race car um, and, and aligning Dick Johnson with the Ford brand. So he's got that, that legacy. Um, Keith was involved in motorsport. My dad was involved in motorsport. That's how that connection happened. Um, and I think Keith and Brian bought, bought the island just because it was there. They had the money. And, you know, why not go and buy an island in the Sundays? <laughs> Sounds like a cool idea. Um, Brian passed away uh, very early on in the piece. And, and so Keith had to work out what he wanted to do. And his vision was um, to transform it from a, a deer park, which is what they had approvals to do, to let's put some tourism accommodation on here and, oh, now we need a, you know, a functioning city. And so he set about building the airport, the marina, um, and building the Hamilton Island as a gateway to the, the Barrier Reef and, and really unlocking North Queensland as far as tourism is concerned, which is just amazing to see that one man could have so much vision to build something. And, and you know, I'm very lucky that I've got a, a picture of me standing on Cat's Eye Beach um, and there's not one building on the island, whereas you go there now, it's a, its own city. Uh, it's self-contained. It can, you know, from water treatment to bakeries to banks to marinas to world-class residential high-rise buildings, it's all there. It's amazing. Uh, just briefly, I'd love for you to just touch on uh, some of the more famous, also internationally, the, the people that you met in that journey, because I know it's, uh, it's a pretty cool story. Um, yeah, Hamilton Island, well, you can imagine, you know, you hear the, the, the heady stories of the 80s and, it, and there was no bigger party place than Hamilton Island and um, motorsport guys used to stop through there from on their way to Adelaide from Japan, so there'd be Nicky Lauda, Gerhard Berger, Barry Sheen, Jack Brabham, uh, Jackie Stewart, uh, and then to, to guys that would follow them, a guy like George Harrison, who we got to know very well. Um, the, the king and queen of Denmark came to my dad's 50th birthday barbecue, which was wow. pretty amazing when you sit down and talk to someone. So what do you do? Oh, I'm the king of, <laughs> king of Denmark. And the, the funny thing about that was that they'd, the king and the queen had actually snuck out that night and the security guys didn't know where they were. And the king and queen just heard this party going on, which was at my dad's house. And they stopped off to get a bit of Aussie hospitality and have a barbecue. And, you know, 11 o'clock at night, in comes the dudes with the earpieces and the suits and they promptly got told to go away. Everything was cool. And uh, you've, just, you've just skimmed over the name George Harrison yeah. as well. Yeah. Yeah, George, George was... We were very lucky to, to get to know George. And, and um, again, that's a motorsport thing. Um, not any sort of music-based thing or anything like that. And I, and I actually never, ever spoke to him about music or anything like that. And um, Dad and my George, uh, George and my father got to, to know each other quite well. And, and me being in Adelaide, Dad said, look, here's my son's number. When you're in town, give him a call. He'll look after you. And George came to town. He rang me. And there I am, this pimply 16-, 17-year-old kid hopping around with my dad's pommy mate, who I you know, obviously knew that he was pretty famous, um, but didn't appreciate 
uh, his his impact on the world, I guess, and and that's probably why we got along. Without dwelling on it, was there anything that stood out in terms of his thinking, these characteristics? I mean, he was a well-regarded, uh, you know, person in a, in a lot of brackets of of uh, industries. So, was there anything that stood out? Um, we, he complained to me one time about how many autographs he had to sign here, and I said, "Like, how do you deal with you know wherever you go?" And he said, "Oh, it, I've got two ways of dealing with it." And I said, "What's that?" And he said, "I can walk in the front door and be George Harrison the Beatle, or I can walk in the side door and just be George." And I thought that's a really cool way of dealing with it. And and quite often we'd go out, and you know, depending on his mood, he'd either want the attention or he wouldn't want the attention. So depending on where we were, we'd either sit at the front of the restaurant or down the back, you know, and and it's interesting. I, I take that with me now in life, and you see different people who are you know well known or whatever, and you just sort of can measure people, you know, how they act in public. Um, it's, it's interesting, really interesting. I just want to jump across now to your time with the Adelaide Thirty Sixes in the NBL. So, bit of context: this was back in the day when I was a sport reporter at Nine, and um, we we're probably picking over the carcass of what appeared to be the Adelaide 36's um, enterprise then. Um, and if I remember correctly, this would have been around 08, 09. Um, you know, rock bottom, um, not just the Sixers, NBL sort of in a difficult state, as it has been for much of the last decade, it almost feels like. But as a reporter at the time, we thought the Sixers were gone. And... Um, you were part of a consortium which gave the Sixers life again. Can you maybe give me a bit of bit of the story around that time as to what was happening from your perspective there? Yeah, I guess I've been around basketball for a long time. I've played the game. I love it. I've I worked out this year. I'll, 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 at some point this season, I'll watch my 600th NBL game um, live. Um, so that's a fair dedication to the wow. sport. And yeah, I just wasn't prepared to see, as a fan, as a basketball guy, um, wasn't prepared to see my team die, um, which was absolutely what was intended to happen. Um, so a group of people got together and for, for everyone has their own rationales, their own reasoning for getting involved. And there was you know, eight or so of us that got involved and, and bought the name um, and set about building a team and we literally started with the name and a blank A4 sheet of paper and within three months had our first home game. Um, so that was, uh, yeah, amazing. What was the business of the Adelaide 36s like at that time? It's, it's like many people that go to sporting events, whether you're a Crows fan or a you know, V8 Supercars fan, you look in the crowd and you say, well, hang on, I've paid 30 bucks to get in here and there's 10,000 people here and you start doing the maths in your head, or maybe that's just me, but you start going, well, this thing has to make money. And, and it's not until you actually get involved in the minutiae of the, of the sport or what it takes to put 10 people playing basketball on a, on a basketball court that you understand the cost that's involved mm -hmm. in making that business happen. And there's a lot of unforeseens or a lot of things that are in the shadows that... Um, you don't necessarily know you have to budget for. Um, so the business is, um, in the words of Andrew Vlahov, a great Australian basketballer, he said, no one goes to the circus to see the tent. So the business is entertainment, it's about the people on the court, and then it's about selling that product, hopefully, to thousands of people, and then 
having a package that you can then go to sponsors and say, we can assist you with your branding, your messaging, your, your community involvement by getting your name attached to what we're doing. And that's, that's basically how all sport works. My, my only real experience with, with basketball has been, like a lot of South Australians, probably through the, the Halcyon period of the 90s where, uh, you know, Mark Davis, uh, Scott Ninnis, uh, you had all those great, uh, you know, South Australian names. Um, and not being a basketball fan, my only gateway to the sport was probably Friday and Saturday nights used to be on TV. And this hamster wheel effect seems to happen if it's not on TV or if it's not on, you know, primetime TV, people don't watch it. And if it's, people don't watch it, they say, well, it can't be on sort of those prime slots. Um, will that ever change? Um, well, this season, um, every game's live on Fox and the Sunday game's live on uh, the Channel 9 network, whether that's Gem or Nine itself. Um, it's almost a bit of a chicken and the egg problem because... There's one school of thought that says, well, if we're on TV, that'll give us the horsepower we need to fix the product. Mm. Right, well, if we fix the product, then we'll be on TV. So mm. there's this constant um, chasing, I guess you'd call it, of trying to solve problems. Mm. Um, my, my belief is that if you build it, they will come. You know, Like if you put a product that's on the floor or on the cricket pitch or on the soccer field that's worthy of people attending, mm. the other stuff will be attracted to it automatically. Um, you know, 15 years ago, V8 supercars were getting 10,000 people in Malala. Now it's one of the biggest events in the state, simply because they got their act together, they got their management correct, they got the right people on the bus that worked out what the product was, what business they were in, and then drove that um, forward. On, on that, um, particularly the management and commercial side of basketball, I mean, we see basketball as a sport massive globally. Uh, in Australia, participation is enormous. But at the highest level in Australia, it's appeared to be a bit of a basket case for you know at least the last 10 years. Where has it all gone wrong? Um, I know it's not a simple answer, but why hasn't it sort of really clicked here in Australia? Uh, if I could answer that perfectly... Um, I wouldn't be sitting here talking yeah. to you guys, you know. <laughs> um, no, that's uh, that's unkind. I think, I think, uh, I think, yeah, yeah, because you're great guys. Um, what what my personal belief is that the NBA, uh, the NBA started to dominate the world of sport uh, in in basketball sense. Is the NBA started saying, right, we're the biggest show on the planet. We've got the biggest stars on the planet. We want our customers to be global, we want our business to be global, and that's what they've gone and done. And, you know, the NBL, you could almost see as more accessible the NBA became mm-hmm. on, on Fox, on streaming, on, you know, phones and apps, and even in the media. You know, back in the day when the NBL was booming, you wouldn't see an NBA score in the paper. You had to be a diehard to go and find out what the Bulls did and yeah. all that sort of stuff. Um, Whereas now, it's very easy for people to watch LeBron and Kobe and, and Dante Exum and Joe Ingles and these people on TV or on their phone while they're you know, out at lunch or whatever. Um, so getting them to come and watch a what's perceived an inferior product, I don't believe it is, um, is, is very, very difficult. You know, um, V8 supercars, they're the best in the world at what they do. Cricket, best in the world at what they do. AFL, best in the world at what they do. Basketball isn't, and I know you know A League. The soccer has probably got the same challenges. Yeah, um, that's what I was going to ask. Is in the context of the A League, where you know soccer was the bas- 
basket case for many years in Australia, but then there's been that regeneration through the A-League, and it hasn't been perfect, but it seems to have got it together to some extent. So that would be that sort of argument where people would say, oh, well, well, soccer's done it, can basketball follow in the, in the same way? Yeah. I think there's... I, I find that that's exactly the, the, the um, equation, is soccer have managed to reboot themselves... Um, go from it's, it's very simplistic, I understand, but yeah, yeah it's but it, it is on the outside. It's very simplistic, but it is quite complex. And and people say, well, soccer have got themselves together. I'm like, well, hang on, A League lost twenty million dollars last year. Is yeah. that getting themselves together? Yeah, you know, you know, we've got I know owners of A League teams that look at what basketball's doing, going, geez, how well are you guys going? Like, mm-hmm. it's only cost you two hundred grand or a million bucks. You know, we'd love to have that problem. Um, but what soccer has done very, very well is monetize the, the commerciality of it. So they've got this perception of success. Yeah. They've got level blue chip sponsorship. They've got great media partnerships. Um, and that's the difference, is the perception. Now, the reality on the balance sheet of the clubs, um, like, like AFL clubs, um, is vastly different to what the perception is. Mm-hmm. Um, and just on that... Uh, if you've got any raw stats, I mean, I know from my time in the AFL, you know, good clubs will turn over anywhere between 65 and 80 mil. They all look to make small profits, reinvesting back into footies, the prime um, purpose. Have you got any some of the, just those broad stats from a business point of view for the Sixers? Yeah, I think what you find with AFL clubs is they don't actually make money out of football. No. It's, it's the secondary businesses. Yeah. It's, you know, Collingwood owning pubs. It's, it's you know, Crows doing other things with their money. Uh, with their money. Port Power running uh, peripheral business that actually subsidise the AFL business. Um, so in a basketball sense, the, the, the accepted norm is that you need to generate $3 million a year to break even. Yeah. So that can be achieved, and it is being achieved. You've got clubs that are profitable. Um, you know, Perth Wildcats at the moment have got a standing offer, I believe, of between 10 and $15 million to buy their licence um, because they're a profitable business. And, and that's, for me, that's a great case study. Having been in Perth for the last eight years, I mean, they own that town. Um, they, are a, they are a prominent brand. Um, yes, they've got a new stadium. They paint it red. There's a lot of hype about it. But it is interesting that that, 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 that club is clearly strong in the marketplace um, and it's not the same for everyone else. The, the Sixers were at that point. Yeah. I mean, we, we've spoken about it, how um, it wasn't that long ago when it was the place to be to go and watch the Sixers. It was packed every week. Yeah. Everyone was pumped. It was exciting. So, I don't know. It feels like that we can, we can find a way to get back to that. I, I believe so. But and, and you touched on it before, the halcyon days of the 90s. And if you go back in Adelaide's history, that was before the Adelaide Crows existed, mm. before Port Power existed, before Big Bash, before Clipsal. Um, so there was these uh, m- major, major sporting events or... or Participants have come into the marketplace where basketball used to be pretty much it in the winter season. That was the national sport. You know, there was no Adelaide United. And, you know, Adelaide City and Hellas were busy killing each other. Um, you know, and, and SANFL was the the, yeah. only, the the thing you did during the day. Yeah. Um, so basketball switched to summer to get away from AFL and that mm. sort of stuff. And I think that was probably a damaging decision um, because that then impacted on what players we got here because it's now competing with the NBA season rather than being in the NBA off-season. Just, again, just some comparisons. Interesting that to to run a waffle club, uh, it's 3.5 million, and that still includes a $600,000 kick-in from the footy commission. Um, But So in terms of the cost to run 
a, you know, the highest level in Australia sporting club, it's pretty cheap, really, yeah. isn't it? Really? It, it is, it is. And considering like, of, of that, if you say let's generate $3 million, the salary cap's a $1 million. So there's $2 million in off-court costs, whether that's court hire, administration costs, flights, accommodation, uh, whatever those other costs are. So it's, it's not necessarily the, the, the team that's costly, it's the business of running the team that can be costly. And, and that's where the trap can come of, right, well, let's cut some things here to save some money rather than invest and try and generate more income. Yeah. So how do you see sort of the commercialisation of not just basketball but all sports in Australia? How do you see it unfolding in the, in the years ahead, perhaps put your, get your crystal yep. ball out, um, yep. you know, looking at all the, all the different sports, um, you know, how is that going to evolve? Okay, I see, and this you know, might, might upset some people, I think AFL is doomed. Uh, personally, Ooh, wow. I, well, I think we love a bit of controversy. It's about time someone got off the fence. Big spike in listening to the radio. Well, the reason why I say that is kids in the street aren't growing up with local heroes anymore. Um, they're growing up with Lionel Messi and Ronaldo, Kobe Bryant and LeBron um, as their global heroes because these guys have got massive corporates pushing their not only their sport but them as a personality, as a brand. Um, AFL's got challenges, a lot of challenges with the, the characters involved in the game, whether it's you know drugs, you know association with women, um, all that sort of stuff. The, the AFL is quite an outlier as far as international sports. You know, to get sixty, seventy thousand people to a football game in the same in, in one city is is an, a real outlier. Um, you, you look at overseas motorsport events, whether it's MotoGP, they'd be jumping up and down if they got 60,000 people to watch an international branded motorsport event. Um, so I think that is, that's what's going to happen. It's going to be easier for kids growing up to, to access, like I said before, um, a 10-year-old kid can sit down and watch every game of the Chicago Bulls on his phone in his bedroom now. So... That's the issue for Australian sports, is the globalisation is coming. EPL teams are already investing in Australian mm. soccer teams because they want to control the market. Liverpool are visiting Australia because they want to build their business internationally. NBA does it um, in China and Africa at the moment. They're, they're tra- these, these global giants are travelling mm. to start harnessing their own brand and to get people on board. So if you're... A sport like the AFL, which has issues that it's not played internationally, it's not an Olympic sport, um, they are some significant roadblocks. And I'm assuming the vehicle that really that it is going to sort of broadcast this globalisation of sport is mobile technology, mobile streaming. You know, that anecdote that you said of a kid lying in his room really is the key to it, isn't it, and being able to watch it. Yes, these teams can travel, but, I mean, that might be once a year, once every two years, once every five years. Um, you see that technology piece is critical? Yeah, I think um, there was something that blew me the other way the, the other day. There was, um, you know, virtual reality is going to change the game as well. Um, you could have watched an NBA game with your virtual reality goggles that would have put you courtside at an NBA game a couple of weeks ago. So imagine that. Like, you don't actually have to travel to the LA Forum to watch the Lakers play anymore. You can just put your goggles on and you're going to be there in the crowd effectively. That's unbelievable. That's unbelievable. So that, you know, the media, the smarts of people, you know, the youth that's coming through with their tech savvy and and just there's no barriers anymore. There's no that's or we can't do that stuff because we don't have the tech to do it. We do have the tech. We've got the people and it's starting to happen. 
So, Ben, I mean, coming back to your role in basketball, do you have any sort of formal role in um, or involvement in the sport anymore? I mean, what, how long were you CEO of the Sixers? A bit over a uh, yeah, year? Yeah, a couple of years. Couple of years. Um, and, and was on, still a part owner up until uh, earlier this year. Um, now I'm just a well-wisher and uh, confidant of, of some key people there who, who see some value in my worthy opinions. Perhaps just another very quick one on, on the basketball side of things. You and I have had discussions particularly around the player welfare and um, particularly the commercial side for, for basketballers. I mean, we know that the AFL's come a long way as far as looking after players coming through, helping them understand money and how to manage it. Where's basketball at with that? Um, it's, it's been overlooked, it really has been overlooked. Um, again, going back to the, the glory days, guys were earning big money, big money. So they would be able to finish their careers. There's guys still on the trail end of that, and they're um, retiring now. They've got two or three properties paid off. Um, they've done their degree or they've invested in businesses, so their life after basketball. But it, it's probably not just a basketball problem. It's a, probably a pro sports problem where guys... And we all do it. We think we're infallible. We think we can go forever. Um, but we're all, a, you know, a, an ACL or a, you know, a jaw break or whatever away from your career finishing and that, that big payday um, coming to an end. So the, the setup of, of player welfare is, is I think, a, a real important issue that needs to be handled by ownership. And, and, but also it comes down to, you know, you can't lead the proverbial horse to water. You know, a, a guy... 20-year-old kid's going to sit on the couch and play Xbox if that's what he want, wants to do because he doesn't understand in, when he's 24 he might not be playing basketball. He might actually be in a 9-to-5 job doing you know, 40 grand's worth of work. So to, to, to maximise um, their time and their income is, is critical to get them set up so that life after sport, life after basketball, whatever it is, is an easy transition. After a slight pause there, we had um, producer Delmont just having to do some background research for us. So we had a, we had a quick break, but we're back now um, with Ben Fitzsimmons. Um, and we're just finishing off, I guess, the discussion about uh, basketball. And I, my question is, um, what is the NBL product? If you're going to describe it, if the NBL is going to differentiate itself in the marketplace, how would you describe an ideal NBL product? The One of the things when I was in charge, we said was that the families need to go away from the game, regardless of the result, feeling like they had a great night out and they got value for money. Um, basketball was unique in that it's in the marketplace, it's indoors and it's relatively quick. The you know, game can be over in two hours. You're not out in the sun for half a day or, or whatever it is. So it's close, you're close to the action. It's a, you know from go-to-woe entertainment. It's relatively non-stop. Um, and so it needs to be a, you know, the selling point needs to be a short, um, short-charged, uh, time-efficient entertainment package. Yep. Um, and, and hopefully basketball's sort of positioned itself that it's more than just the game. And you see that with Big Bash, you know, the dancing girls and the fireworks and all that sort of stuff. That's all basketball stuff. Um, AFL's starting to copy the NFL yeah. stuff a lot now with their intro music and cheerleaders and, you know, music and, and all that. Yeah, there's, a, there's an actual full-blown production. Yeah. Um, and that's kind of just what you have to do to compete. So 
the basketball product in Australia is it should be about Australian basketballers that are are being groomed to be on the world stage because yeah. that's that's where we are. We are. I wouldn't go as far as to say it's a development league because um, it, it's not. But having said that, kids have got to play somewhere and start somewhere. So of course, there's always going to be kids that are being developed. And whether they are Brad Newleys and Joe Ingles that then go on to play in the NBA or, or have huge overseas careers, um, or they just stay local, you know, that's up to, to them. But I think that's where it sits. Yeah. From one of your passions to, I guess, um, the motorsport passion, um, again, for me, motorsport as a, at a participation level as you're young always seemed kind of out of reach, out of touch. It's sort of, you know, it's something that happens over there. Um, just give us your background with with the motorsport, the evolution of your family in, in motorsport, and and what it means to be you know competing in that in that world, um, right through to now. I'd like, I'm going to get your thoughts on um, Formula One and the whole kind of formula that seems to just play out every week with um, Hamilton and and I think it's Rosberg. Yeah. So, but anyway, start start from the beginning with motorsport. Um, I guess yeah, like I touched on before, my my my. Father was involved in motorsport, and that came from my grandfather, who who raced motorbikes before he went off to war. Um, and then my uncle got inflicted with it, and um, was probably the most successful person in the family. And and he was national champion, state champion in speedway, and and uh, well regarded in in that. And and he's gone on to a, a great post career in uh, with Dunlop Motorsport. So he's at every V8 supercar event. And you know, from a little kid, I just got tagged along and said, "This is cool." And and uh, got the... even even more basically though. So what ha- every weekend you go to a track and you race. Is that is that what happens? Well, what what the discipline I'm involved in is tarmac rally. And so there's four or five big tarmac rallies. So Classic Adelaide, Targa Tasmania, uh, Targa High Country, which is on this weekend um, in in uh, Victoria. Um, and that's where you're on bitumized roads. Uh, navigator, driver, and different classes of vehicles. So you're competing against contemporaries. You haven't got a multi-million dollar race car going up against a Datsun 1600. The Datsun 1600 competes against other yeah. cars of its age and, and capacity. Um, and and that's a that's that can be costly, but it's probably cheaper than circuit racing. Circuit racing is you know relentless on tyres and mechanics and that sort of stuff. But the trade-off is that tarmac rallying is a hell of a lot more riskier uh, personally uh, versus track racing. Track racing is, is there's ambulances on hand and you know, there's safety fences and, and guardrails and, and all that sort of stuff, whereas tarmac rallying, there's some big frickin' trees that you can yeah, hit. Yeah, yeah, PB got killed in, in WA um, in his Daytona. Uh, I've lost six guys that I could name that, that do tarmac rallying and... Um, if you've seen the Eric Banner movie, um, Love the Beast, I think it's called, um, that sort of touches on that sort of stuff and, and um, the buzz you get from being in a tarmac rally car um, and, and mates and I joke about it, it's, it's kind of a weird thing where you feel compelled to ring your wife after you do a stage and say, I'm still alive. Um, and and I actually, you know, uh, I've just gotten back into it after saying I'm not going to get it, do it again because I've had too many people saying, stop it, stop it, stop it, stop it. Um, but... It's kind of addictive. 
because I, I did ask you one question before we got going, and that is, you know, at what age do you lose your, 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 you know, your, your speed? Because it seems to me that you could go on for a little while. You know, age wasn't necessarily correlated, you know, correlating to, to, to speed. But I'd love to know your thoughts. Um, in, t- in circuit racing, they, they say there's, you know, a couple of things that happen. One is you get married, and two is you have, you have a kid. And um, you touched on Nico Rosberg before. He's had a kid. He's not world champion. Lewis Hamilton doesn't have a kid. Is world champion. And and yeah, he's a single man enjoying life uh, as a world champion should. Uh, but in tarmac, it's probably a little bit uh, different because you're more competing against time rather than a competitor. You're still competing against competitors, but it's more about your own capacity. Um, a guy like Jim Richards and Barry Oliver are still competing in Targa rallies. Jim's in almost seventy. Barry's certainly over seventy now. And those guys are out still running around. Vern Schupen, the Le Mans winner from the early 80s, he was at Classic Adelaide having a run around. And so tarmac rallying seems to be you can still have that buzz and still do well and feel like you're, you know, you're a rock star, uh, whereas circuit racing is certainly, I think, a younger man's game. OK, perhaps let's, let's switch it a bit. And I'm quite interested to know, you know your story and thoughts um, regarding property and business. So perhaps this is the sort of thing that I always like to ask people who are interested in property or own property is when did you get your first, when did you first buy your first piece of property and what was that like? Um, my, my first property I bought when I was 23 and that was a property in Elizabeth, which is low socioeconomic in in Adelaide, and that was, I think, about $56,000 thereabout. Um, and the reason why I bought that uh, was was that I knew that I could rent it out eventually and it would be positively geared. I'm schooled that negatively gearing properties is just a dumb idea, and I believe that it's a dumb idea, and maths proves it's a dumb idea, but yet lots of people go and do it. Um, I believe in positively geared property. Um, so, you know, bought that property sat on it for for a little while, tenanted it out. Um, it went up in value to about $75,000. And, you know, as an early 20s kid, you've just made 25 grand on a property. You think, this is this is super cool. I've got 25 grand now. Um, and, you know, and, and I shouldn't have never have sold it. And that's that's one of the truisms of property is a, is a great property well bought never needs to be sold. Um, and that's such a true thing to say. But So that was my first one, and that turned into five or six and then that turned into to doing developments and that turned into shopping centres and Ah but this is the I love this is all property people do this. They go, Oh that turns into this, and this one turned out yeah, what is what does turning one turning into five mean? Actually, give me some guts. Give me some detail. I'm gonna I'm taking some notes here because I'm gonna go. I'm gonna get rid of my negatively geared stuff. I'm gonna go <laughs> sell up and I'm gonna be uh, you know change my outlook. But I am a bit fascinated in just that step. Only because I've got a friend who's in childcare and he and he said uh, I bought one childcare and then you know five years later I had ten. I'm like, how you know? <laughs> yeah. Um, the the. Probably the answer to that is understanding the game. Like, like everything is a, for me is a game, and that's why I love, you know, the business of sport and sport being a business, and and everything you do in life is a game, and it's understanding what the rules are, and and applying yourself to understand what the rules of property are, and how to acquire property, and how to finance it, and the relationships you've got with people, understanding how valuations work. 
um, that's all critical. Like you, you mate with a childcare centre, probably the first one he bought, his hair would have been on fire. Mm. You know, not understanding it now, it's at number ten. Easy could do it with his eyes closed, and that's for me. That's how I feel about property, and I sort of forget. You know, I've got family that go through buying a property for the first time, and you see how stressed they are. I'm like, what are you stressing about? This is just follow the process. Just do this, make this call, do this, send that email. You'll get the keys in 30 days' time. That's all you have to do. Um, but it's 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 really is a cookie cutter thing. It's just replicate the process. Yeah. So where are your property interests? I mean, I know some people who swear by commercial. Other people who you know they have um, housing, standard housing. Uh, where's your main interest at? Um, the the people ask me this all the time and, and they and it's typically an argument between shares and property but if you go to the, the BRW rich list the top 200 you you'll find if if that person doesn't own their own or doesn't control an ASX listed company or control a massive privately owned company they've probably done it through property um, most of those guys would have done it through commercial property and that's what I choose to do because that's the uh, easiest, not easiest. It's it's horrifically hard, but if you get it right, the payoff is can be significant. Um, um, residential is probably a slower, more sure-footed, steadier path, um, and you'll typically find a lot of property guys have a blend of both. Um, very rarely will you come across one who just does residential and no commercial, versus one that just is, does commercial. Is that for risk reasons? Um, I think. It could be, could be. You know, everyone's different, and you've got to have your own set of rules that you you sit with and you invest with. Um, it's probably more because, it, like anything, if it's if it's a deal, you do it. Yeah. You know, so if I found a house that I thought was one hundred and fifty or two hundred thousand dollars under market value, I'd probably go. I've got to do the deal because I'm yeah. on my balance sheet. That's going to look super sexy. Um, so if you're a property guy and you know how it works, it's very easy to put those so deals together. you just together. keep an eye out for opportunities, really. Uh, it, it's, you know what? I, there's a saying, and it's so true, that if it's in the paper, it's not a good deal. Um, so it's not looking for opportunities. It's having the network that brings the deals to you. And that's every, every deal that's been great for me has been done off market yeah. and with phone calls. And I, I quote from Dominic Cassisi last week actually was, you know, that the it's all about buying. It's buying right. And you mentioned, you know, if something's under what you would value it at, then you, then you get it. You know, that that's where kind of the yes or no? Or? No, I, 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 I get what he's saying, but it's a little bit different to that for me. It's changed the use and you change the value. So if I can convert a four-bedroom house into two-bedroom two units, I've changed the value, I've changed the rent, I've changed the asset, yeah. I'm going to benefit from that. And that's what it is. So I could buy that well, but then if I change it, that's even better. And that's what, that's what I think real, the, the art is, is identifying what the opportunity is to change. You might buy a shop and work out that you can put an apartment on top. Or you might buy a group of apartments and find out that, oh, if I renovate them and rent them out as furnished, I'm going to pick up, you know, 3 or 4% better on my yield or... Or whatever it is, you know, it's the, the, the value is in changing the asset, not just, you know, anyone can go and buy a house and sit on it for 30 years. You know, we all wish that our grandparents bought, you know, harbourside property in Sydney in the 1960s because, you know, we'd be pretty happy with that. But it's changing the use that changes the value. I guess one of the things that we, pretty much regarding property, in the media, we always hear about 
market conditions. Everyone's trying to predict the market. Where's the market going? Ra da ra da ra. First of all, how much how much influence does you know trying to predict the market and all that stuff? Does that have much influence for you? And secondly, where do you see this crystal ball market heading for Adelaide and Australia? Um, I think it's a little bit like the weatherman. Um, how many times do you get up in the morning and go, right, it's going to rain today, I'm going to better take the umbrella and it doesn't rain? That's someone who went to university for four years to tell you that, yeah. right? Um, market conditions for me, and I've been through a couple of cycles now, uh, if you know what you're doing, you should be okay. If you're conservative with your risk-taking, you should be okay. If you don't get too far ahead of yourself, you should be okay. Um, the guys that I've seen tripped up and we're, standing in a, we're sitting in a building that a guy went bankrupt in 15 years ago and here he is owning commercial property in Adelaide um, because took on too much debt, bad thing, a couple of bad decisions and it can fall over. So a conservative, sure-footed approach is the best way. What's the future hold? I don't know. Who knows? All I know is that based on his history, um, property is a, is a great investment vehicle. I might um, change the tact a little bit and, and, and sort of ask a question which, which sits over all the topics, I think, that we've sort of talked about. And that is this, this sort of... Uh, the perception of mediocrity in Adelaide. And I, and, I, and I talk about our sporting teams at the moment. Um, you look at Adelaide United, the Redbacks, um, our footy teams, albeit some spikes in success. It just seems like we don't have an expectation in our sporting world at the, me- the moment. We don't demand success. I mean, Adelaide hasn't won a game in, you know, hasn't won a game in four rounds, five rounds, and it's, it's not big deal. Um, you, look at, you look at property and the way that people talk about the Adelaide economy, the Adelaide property markets, and it's like, you know, everyone poo-poos it. Um, you're, you sort of sit across all these and you've got this entrepreneurial spirit and you've got some vision. I mean, where do you see the reality? And what are your thoughts on, on this beautiful state and city of ours? Um, Adelaide, Adelaide's brilliant. It's got some challenges, like everywhere does. You know, I'm sure if we went in the middle of Times Square and spoke to people of New York, they'd tell you all the bad things about New York, you know? Like, yeah. that's just human beings being human beings, you know? Uh, you do go to some cities, though. You go to, you know, whether it's a Singapore or, you know, wherever it is in the world, Dubai... And you just get, you can smell it in the air. This is a just get things done attitude. Mm. And I think that's possibly the only, th- the, the, the frustration I have in Adelaide is this um, old school mentality that seems to, uh, you know, the classic example is, and it was brought up in the media a few weeks ago, whether or wanting to go and fight for the food trucks, yet not prepared to fight for Uber. Mm. So why are you so, uh, why are you so bullish on food trucks? when Uber is doing the same for a different marketplace? Why is, why, why is there a difference? Be the consist- I think it's probably lack of consistency and attitude. Yeah, you know. So then that's a good... I mean, it is a, I'm sort of fulfilling the own, our own sort of narrative here by asking a negative question. Flip it. What is, in your mind, what are the brilliant things? What are the beautiful things? What are the great things about Adelaide? And where do you see opportunity for younger entrepreneurial people to have a bit of fun and have a crack at stuff? Um, there's, there's, there's two things, I think, is, is the government make, needs to make it easier for all businesses in South Australia to operate. Um, payroll tax is just 
insane. The, the amount of taxes and the, the, the limits that are placed on businesses in Australia and therefore in Adelaide is just mind-boggling versus, um, you know, for, for, you to, for a start-up to actually get off the ground, to get through all the government stuff that prohibits it from seemingly getting off the ground, to be compliant and to have the right this and that... That's just nauseating, and I think that's there's a number of people in Adelaide that are good people that have just gone. This is too hard, and they've moved, and they've gone somewhere where it's easier. The other thing that I think that we've got here is we really undersell how good our natural assets are. Like I've spent a lot of time in Queensland and overseas and that sort of stuff. Port Wollonga is the best beach I've ever been to in the world, you know. And I've spent a lot of time on in the Whit Sundays, you know. That be like. We don't, we're not proud of ourselves, and yeah. I just think that that's really sad when we've got so much that we can be proud of. Mm. Kangaroo Island, you know, we don't go to Kangaroo... South Australians don't go to Kangaroo Island. We've got people coming from all over Europe mm. that go to Kangaroo Island because it's amazing, mm. yet we don't talk it up. But the thing, and the thing I loved about Kangaroo Island was their the marketing ploy with, you know, with getting some celebrities to start tweeting about it. And I also loved, you know, an Eddie Vedder song to a sort of windswept TV advertisement. You know, too often we just see kids on beaches with sunny, you know, Australia. This was that brooding, moody campaign of kids in hoodies and it's windy and it's gloomy, but it's it's rugged and it's the coastline. It was just spot on. Like, it, it captured my attention. I thought, that is world class, you know, that, and Kangaroo Island is world class. So com completely agree. Monty? So, Benny, what's ahead for you in the next few years, mate? Um, you know, you're an entrepreneurial guy, you're having a crack at a lot of different things. Um, I'm just interested to hear what, what sort of, what you're eyeing off in the next few years. I had a conversation with a great mate of mine this morning. For me, I've just shifted uh, my mental space into, I've got a couple of young kids and everything, every decision I'm making now is based about um, trying to make their life choices easier so so building assets and income where they can have time if they want to go and be a buddhist and sit somewhere in india and study with someone knock yourself out we can finance that if you want to go and study art in paris we can fund that like i just want to so that's my goal that's what i'm trying to do and and decisions that i'm making are based around trying to put myself and my family in, in that situation um yeah uh, I'm always, I love the question, you know, what does your typical week you get, look like? You get up on a Monday, can you just give me an overview? You know, is it a few coffee shops, a few meetings, is it, is it looking at your computer? Um, you know, where do you gain your income and revenue stream and, and what does your week look like? Yeah. Um, you sound like my wife. Uh, <laughs> love you, love you. Um, <laughs> I don't know how to answer that because um, the way I work and it's a bit, I don't know, frustrating for some people is, is I kind of, the phone rings and I react, which is, which is okay because I've got the time to do that. I've built passive income up now that I don't need to have a Monday to Friday nine to five job. Uh, yeah, yeah, effectively, effectively. Um, so now I've got time. I've bought my time back. So... What I do is, this morning I was at a cafe sitting with a guy learning about private mortgages and how he invests in property developers with his cash and 
okay, so I'll go and meet with him. And you know, next week I'll, uh, I'm going somewhere with one of the state's wealthiest blokes because we're just going to hang out and do stuff. And you know, last week, well, I was in Bali last week and found out that I was, this is how anti or unaware of AFL I am, I was at dinner with uh, three times uh, with an AFL coach. I had no idea who he was other than... <laughs> Right. No, I won't say. Did you tell him that AFL was doomed? (laughs) No, because if I'd known who he was, I probably would have. But mate, get a real job. Um, Yeah. So, so so it's kind of reactionary, and I might get an email saying, "Ben, you know, this has happened at a property. You know, we need to take care of it." All right. So that's two, three hours goes in dealing with that, or. Just processing stuff. Are you, are you the stingy landlord where you've got to go and fix no. the taps yourself? And no, 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 no. This is, this is, this is, I've got to tell you this story because it just so pumps me up. Again, it's a motorsport related thing. So there's a wonderful, wonderful lady called Betty Clemenko who owns the Erebus motorsport team, the Mercedes back team. Betty is uh, the heir to the West, Westfield portion that Frank Lowy doesn't own, which is amazing in itself, and there's 60-minute stories on her and all that sort of stuff, and she's a really, really cool lady. And um, I said, you know, and this is how I think the world works. I just said, said to my uncle, I said, can you get, hook me up with, Bevy, with Betty? Yep, no worries. And we went to the Erebus garage, and Betty, this is my nephew, and he wants to talk to you. All right. Off we go. So we went out and sat with the Winnebago and she smoked half a packet of cigarettes and, <laughs> and I sat with her husband uh, and, and I just asked questions and said, how do you deal with this problem? How do you deal with that problem? And she said, Daniel, go and get so-and-so out of the, the garage. And all of a sudden I had two Westfield directors and Betty Clemenko and her, her husband sitting there answering my questions about my poor little tired run-down neighbourhood centres that I own. And she, she just said, this is what you need to do. Um, I was, you go to, to the council and tell the council you want to do this and yeah. tell them that you want to do that. Okay. And within six weeks, I had the council that the, one of these shopping centres is within is spending $250,000 on my shopping centre. And then two weeks after that, they came to me with a cheque for fifty grand that they got off of another property developer who had to donate money because they wanted something done and said, we've got this money, can we spend it on your shopping centre for you? Yes, you can. <laughs> and that was all... That, so that's three, $300,000 that came in, in improvements to my shopping centre that came from sitting down, being ballsy enough, I guess, to go and ask, can I have... Can you teach me? Yeah. And Because what I've found with... with people of that ilk is they want to share their experience. They don't want that to be wasted. And, I, you know, the beautiful moment in my life was 12 months after that, I went and sat with Betty and said, here's the photos. And she just hugged me and said, thank God you listened to me. She said, how many people ask me for stuff and just ignore me? And she said, I'm so proud of you. And I thought, ah, beautiful. That's, I think that's a bloody awesome story to finish on because this is sort of what we're... I've got, I've got, one, I've got one more question. I've got one more question. I can't but obviously I spent a bit of time in the leadership space and, um, and my mantra with leadership is always I look at what people have done and what they do and, and there are, there's so much, there's so much stuff and theory and, and, and I say wank in this whole leadership sphere of pe- from people who don't really do it. They just commentate on it. And I'm always fascinated by you know, listening to people who are just living and breathing it. In your own leadership journey, and this is the last of my questions, Monty, and I can hand back to you, but, but whether you call yourself a leader or not, I don't care. I mean, you clearly led in the fields that you've been involved in. Um, do you formally read about this stuff or you just do it? Um, 
Absolutely. One of my mentors who's turned into a friend is, is, is he's got a couple of sayings. Is you know, a book a week, and I can tell you your bank balance by the size of your library. And to me, that hits home that you've got to read, you've got to read, you've got to educate yourself. And there's, there's so much on-the-job stuff, but you can leverage your experiences by going to someone who's an expert in your field. And, you know, like if someone comes to me with property and says, what do I do? I, can, I could nutshell 20 years of experience into a 15-minute conversation for that person. And that's... That's super powerful, and no matter what industry you're in, and you guys do the same, Monty, you do it with the stuff you're trying to do, um, getting advice from people who have done it, not people that are employed to tell you what to do, because they've got a you know they've got a mortgage and a BMW on finance and a credit card that's over its limit, and you know they're not the people to listen to. The people to listen to is is you will gravitate to the people that you want. Um, you know, one of my great lines that I picked off of reality TV of all places is your network determines your net worth. And that's so telling. Whether it's, it's a monetary thing or whether it's a spiritual thing or if it's a, 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 a public service thing, the people that you hang around and are, are like, uh, align yourself with, that's what you'll become like. You know, if, you're, if you hang around guys that go to a gym and watch what they eat, you're going to become a guy that goes to the gym and becomes what you eat. If you become around, hang around guys that are into to football, you're going to be a guy that ha- likes football. If you, you know, that's just who you associate with. If you, you know, if you're into drugs and want to go and rob banks, you're going to find like-minded people and you're going to go and do it together. That's just how humans are. We, we, we align ourselves with people who are uh, uh, on the same path. Um, and, you know, networking is so critical. And that, that leadership stuff is is, yes, you can learn on the job, but I don't think there's anyone on this planet that's done it, just woken up one day and just decided they're the world's greatest lead. They've learnt from someone, whether it's studying someone or listening to someone or being mentored. That's how it is. Well, I think from my point of view, the greatest test is always, uh, you know, can that person shift your perception and has that person influenced you uh, from a leadership point of view? And all I can say is we've had probably 40 minutes or whatever it is, and I've been influenced, so there you go. It's, it's just a great example of, of leadership isn't about going conducting a workshop. Leadership isn't about necessarily having to run a big business. But if you have a conversation with someone, and in 40 minutes, if your perceptions and energy levels have shifted, for me, that's just a great litmus test. And to be able to just approach people, and I think that's one of the key things that, that I really sort of picked up on from your story there, is, you know, you, you may you may get ignored by some people, but I think that's actually pretty rare. And most of the time it's our own perception that we think that someone isn't going to want to share their knowledge, when in fact, a lot of the people that I've... We're sharing our knowledge. No one's even asked for it yet. (laughs) (laughs) That's true. But but what I've found with what I do and particularly with um, you know my, my youth mental health startup Talk Life is some of the great partnerships that we've been able to set up with Microsoft Research, Harvard, MIT. It started off by just finding out the key contact and just asking them and just starting a conversation. And so many times that has happened for us when most people don't actually bother to make that initial attempt at an engagement. Yeah, it's 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 the Tony Robbins line. You see the hot chick, the hottest chick in the nightclub, and you're too scared to go and talk to her because what if she says no? But what if she says yes? You know, that's a beautiful line. In and in business, in whatever, like I would have no problem going up to anyone on the planet. It's just a question. 
You know, all you're doing is asking a question. The guy could be a guy or girl could be a jerk, but they could also say, "Here's my card. I'm happy to help you any time you want." You know. Look, I think that's an awesome point to finish on. Um, it's probably been our longest, but I think most insightful Rooster Radio episode. Uh, thanks so much for your time, Benny. Much appreciated, mate. Um, your insights have been spectacular. Um, as you know, Rooster Radio, we like to touch on business, sport, marketing, leadership, and I think we've pretty much covered everything. So it has just really nailed what Rooster Radio is all about. Thanks for listening, thanks for your time, and we'll be back within a week with the next episode of Rooster Radio.